Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you this morning to turn with me in your copies of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. In a moment, we will read the whole chapter, all 29 verses. reminded of this week and the fact that there are many messages that are out there in our world, many messages that we hear in various different ways, whether we read them, whether we see them on television, whether we hear or read or see them on the internet. So many messages are out there in this world. I I wonder how many of those messages you say, I really have to hear that message. I really need to hear it. My life depends upon that message. Let me tell you, this week, I have not found another message that I need to hear but the message that comes from God's Word. That is it. It's the most important message. No other message. And so, we listen to this message differently than we listen to any other message that might come our way. Because God's word comes to us with authority, and so we come to God's word then as those who place ourselves in submission underneath the authority of God's word, under the authority of the scripture. It might seem weird to some people. Why would you put yourself under? Why would you submit yourself to an ancient book that would seem out of date, out of touch, that it would have nothing relevant to say. Well, it's because we believe this is God's word. And so it always has something to say. It is always relevant. It is not out of date. And it always does its intended work. And think about that. We've come to Exodus 10 today, And I believe that God has brought us to Exodus 10 on this day, August 1st, 2021, for a reason. To say something to us from his word today. And that it's going to be good. And I know it's going to be right and true and beneficial. Because God's word is always faithful. What other message is like that out there in the world? 
What other message is as faithful as the message that comes from God's Word? Is this the Word that you've come to put yourself under today? To listen to today? I hope so. So with that, let's read Exodus 10 together. If you would stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's Word. Once I get to verse 29 and Read verse 29, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful for his word. Follow along as I read Exodus 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold... Tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. 
And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to them, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses, says, Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Are you one who likes to hit the snooze button on your alarm? To be honest, I never really understood the snooze button. When the alarm goes off, that's it. I'm up. I guess the snooze button is about delaying the inevitable. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That little button on your alarm clock, if you still use your alarm clock, on your phone. I think you could still do it even on that. Snooze, snooze. You delay the inevitable, though, don't you? You are supposed to be getting up, but you hit the snooze. Just five more minutes, just ten more minutes, just a few more winks of shut eye, and then I'll drag my carcass out of bed. But sometimes, if given the option to put it off, you hit the snooze. But you can't hit the snooze forever. As we come to the eighth and ninth plagues of the Exodus, there is an alarm that is going off. It's an alarm that has been annoyingly ringing, but now the ringing has gotten louder. It is nonstop. It cannot be ignored, yet it, it continues to be ignored. Pharaoh tries to hit the snooze time and time again. He thinks that he can delay the inevitable, or even worse, perhaps he thinks that he is winning or at least maybe he would think he's not losing. So far, he's gotten past the seven plagues. But now, the alarm of impending doom cannot be ignored anymore. The time is growing short. It's almost upon him. Will he wake up 
to the judgment of God that is upon him. What is it? What is the impending doom and its alarm that is incessantly ringing? It is here the warning of impending death. This is where the judgment of God leads. It leads to death. Here is the curse that now is upon the world because of sin. Because of sin, death is upon all mankind. And death is what sinners deserve. We read this in Romans, don't we? Three, for the wages of sin is death. What does our sin deserve? You know, when you work, you gain wages, right? I've worked, I've earned it, I deserve it. What do you deserve for your sin? The wages of your sin is death. How do you respond when confronted with death? How does the world respond when confronted with with death? And oh, how I'm afraid that the world is often deaf to the alarm, all the while thinking that they have more and more time. They can delay the inevitable. They can put it off. They can continue to hit the snooze when all of the sudden their time is up. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. That's what Jesus said. And how many people have stored up for themselves treasures on earth, but they are completely bankrupt when it comes to being rich in God? The alarm is going off. It's an alarm that is not comfortable. But it's coming, it's ringing. Pharaoh is confronted with the nearness of death. And its nearness is shown as these judgments now begin to escalate. They begin to get worse and worse. And so how does Pharaoh respond? What does he do with such escalation of judgments? How does he respond? He responded like maybe so many would respond. Maybe you would respond this way when you're confronted with death. Maybe so many in our world would respond this way when confronted with death. And it's helpful to think through these wrong responses so that we can learn from them and focus on the right response when confronted with impending death. So what are these wrong responses that Pharaoh shows us in these verses? You can follow along in your bulletin. There's an outline there for you. But number one, you can be in denial when confronted with impending death. You can be in denial when confronted with impending death. We come to the middle of the last cycle of plagues. Remember, these plagues are happening in a cycle. One, two, three, that's one cycle. Four, five, six, that's another cycle. Seven, eight, nine, that's the last cycle before the climax will reach beginning next week. So we're right in the middle of this last cycle. God is now pulling back the curtain for Moses to show Moses what he is doing. We were told at the end of the sixth plague that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart 
That was a commentary on what was happening in the depth of Pharaoh's heart behind the scenes. But here we have something unique. Now the Lord is revealing to Moses. You see this at the beginning of chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So Moses now is getting this opened up to him so he can see what the Lord is doing. The Lord reveals it to him very clearly. And God tells him by direct divine revelation, Moses, I am hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it reminds us that the Lord is in complete control of the situation. Not only is he in control of the situation, this reminds us that the Lord is orchestrating everything according to his perfect will. Do you recognize that in your life? The Lord is orchestrating everything according to his perfect will. That's easy to think about if everything in our life is merely blessing. Ah, yes, God is orchestrating all this blessing that I see in my life, but what about the hard times? What about the difficult times? What about the times of judgment, that God is even orchestrating that? And so here we see God orchestrating everything from beginning to end. This is what the sovereign Lord does. He orchestrates everything according to his perfect will. It tells us that God is accomplishing something through these ten plagues. What's the reason? Why is the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart? Does he want to be mean? Does he want to be unjust? No, the Lord is never mean like that. The Lord is never unjust like that. He's accomplishing something, and we see what he's accomplishing here in these verses. The first reason why the Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart, you see in verse 1, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Often we call these ten events the ten plagues. But here the Lord calls them signs. These are signs. They're communicating something. They're, they're telling you something about who I am, is what the Lord says. I'm going to communicate through these signs. They're going to point to greater truths that you must understand. And so the Lord says, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart so that I may show you these signs of mine. These are my signs. I'm revealing myself. I'm communicating. I'm telling you something. Listen up. But the second reason he says that he hardens Pharaoh's heart is in verse 2, that I may tell, or that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Think about that. Moses, I have not done these signs only to communicate to Pharaoh, although they have. I have not done these signs only to communicate to the Israelites, although they do. I have done these signs to communicate to the future generations, to tell what I have done, so that all of my awesome and majestic and wonderful deeds are recounted for them and so that they would know me. They are going to need these events to be firmly fixed in their minds because it's going to tell them about the God who is the redeeming, saving God. 
Here's the whole point of telling your sons and your grandsons. The whole point is worship. The whole point is praise. Why do you tell your sons and grandsons what the Lord has done? Because it's supposed to lead them to worship God. So we have Psalm 78, which in the first four verses says this, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation, what? The glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. What a great and glorious responsibility. Tell these things to your sons and to your grandsons. Tell these things to the future generation. And this is what we still do. We have not stopped. We continue to tell these things to the next generation. We continue to be faithful in this because why? because we want there to be more worshipers of God. One of the reasons, one of the points of marriage, marriage is about making babies worshipers of Jesus Christ. This is what you're doing. Are you telling the future generations? Look around here in our Midst, the future generations are here. They need to have these truths recounted to them. They need to have these truths fixed in their mind because there's going to come a day when they're going to need to, need to draw on these truths to worship God. There's going to come a time when they need these truths firmly fixed in their mind because they're going to need a God who is a strength and a refuge and a saving God. Whose responsibility is it to tell the future generations? Whose responsibility is it? All of ours. All of ours. Everybody. Does it say the most spiritual are to tell people, tell the sons and grandsons? The most faithful, the most diligent. No, everyone, everyone is to tell the future generations about the glory of God and of his might and the wonders that he has done. And what are they supposed to say? You may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt with harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Is that a stumbling block for you? What? The Lord dealt harshly with the Egyptians? Mm, is that what God does? Well, first, let us say that if there is harshness on God's part, it's not a sinful harshness. It's not a harshness, harshness like man is harsh. It's divine and just and right and true. But secondly, we could say this another way. We could say it that he made a mockery 
out of Egypt, that he exposed them for the fools that they were, that he shamed them or disgraced them. And perhaps we can see how the Lord did this from Numbers 33.4. Numbers 33.4 says this, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So that's talking about Egypt. And it's saying, on their gods, on the gods of Egypt, the Lord executed judgment. So why did the Lord do this? Because he wanted to expose all of Egypt's false gods. He wanted to expose their false worship, and he wanted to expose their false pharaoh. And so he shows that through these judgments. And finally, the last reason, the end of verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. It's not that just that they were to know the Lord intellectually, but to know the Lord and live in relationship with him. The Lord, hardening Pharaoh's heart and the heart of his servants, actually serves to bring others closer to him. It actually drew others to him. It actually was used to open up their hearts so that they could know the Lord. And through the Lord's hardening, Pharaoh remained in denial of impending death. But he was bringing other people to redemption and to salvation. And isn't this the way that God works? God's glory is seen in salvation through judgment. It's the way it works in God's word. Do you realize that? God's glory is seen in salvation through judgment. What happened with Noah and the ark? Noah was spared, but there were many people that were judged. How did it work with Pharaoh and the Egyptians? The Israelites were saved, but Pharaoh and the Egyptians were judged. Salvation comes through judgment so that more and more might know the Lord. And in so doing, God gets all of the glory. Who would ever say, God, do you know what you're doing? Yes, God knows exactly what he is doing and why he's doing it. And Pharaoh, as he remains in his denial, though, we see his denial shine forth in these questions that are asked of him. So first, Moses and Aaron are asking this question, how long? How long, Pharaoh? And then Pharaoh's servants are asking the same thing. How long? How long, Pharaoh? How, how long are you going to remain so dense? How long, Pharaoh, do you not see? How long, Pharaoh, are you going to remain ignorant? And Pharaoh is in denial of impending death first because of pride. How long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh remains entrenched in his pride and in his arrogance. Pharaoh continues to exalt himself over the Lord. Pharaoh tries to hold on to his sovereignty and will not give in and will not bow the knee to Yahweh. And this is why the Lord God calls us to humility. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility toward one another for why? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How fascinating in that verse. You cannot claim to be humble before God if that humility is not expressed toward other believers, other Christians. But who is it that might need this, this question directed at them this morning? How long, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord? How long will you think that you know better than God? How long will you fight against Him? How long will you resist Him? Humble yourself before Him. Judgment is coming. And you do not want to be found in opposition to God. Rather, with humility comes undeserved favor from the Lord. With humility, we receive the gift of God's grace. If Pharaoh resisted and refused to humble himself, the next plague was coming. God was going to bring the locust swarm upon the land. And just like the frogs in the past that covered the land, and just like the sea in the future would cover the Egyptians, so these locusts were going to cover the whole entire land. And it even says here that the eyes of the land would be covered. It's as if the surface of the ground was teeming with all of these locusts, so much so that you could not even see the surface of the ground. These locusts are going to come, and what's going to happen? They're going to eat, and they're going to eat, and they're going to eat. The land of Egypt has become an all-you-can-eat buffet for these locusts. Whatever was left over, the hail had already come down and destroyed much of the crops, and now whatever's left over, so these locusts love the leftovers, they come and they're going to eat every last leftover that is there. The Egyptians knew locusts. They knew the danger of locusts, but they had never experienced locusts like these before. And their fathers and their grandfathers had never seen anything like this before either. Notice the contrast here between verse 6 and verse 2. So verse 6 draws us to the fathers and the grandfathers of the Egyptians who had never seen anything like this. Verse 2 talks about, tell this to your sons and to your sons' sons. And there is a contrast because what is being said is, Egypt, you have to look back for your glory days, but the glory of the Israelites is going to go on in the future. You can't stop this glory. It's going to be great. Egypt, your glory is coming to an end. You are seeing your glory come to an end here before your eyes. But the glory of God's people is propelled forward into the future. Isn't that why we're here today? Aren't we a testament to the fact that God's glory has been propelled into the future? Here we are, a testament to the glory of God. That God can save his people and still does save his people. And we are here gathered today because this is what has happened. It's been told to sons after sons after sons, to daughters after daughters after daughters, to grandsons and granddaughters and great-grandsons and great-granddaughters. And here we are because God has used those means to propel His glory forward, a glory that the whole world is supposed to see. That's why we don't take coming together for granted. <laughs> because of what a God has done to get us here. It's a miracle. It's a testament to the greatness of our God. 
We see the second denial, though, with Pharaoh. He refuses to see the devastating and destroying judgment of God that's already come upon the land. Notice what the servants say to him. How long are you going to let this man, this fellow, that's said with some derision, be a snare to us? Don't you already see, Pharaoh? The land has been ruined. The land has been destroyed. Give up already. Give in. Pharaoh is in denial. He does not want to see that the land has been destroyed. He wants to think that he's still in control of the land. I'm still, I'm still king. I'm still Pharaoh. He was not willing to accept the bad news. We understand that there is bad news in the world today. I'm not talking about the bad news you read in your newspapers. There's plenty of bad news there. Or on the internet or wherever you get your news. I'm talking about the bad news of what we talked about at the beginning, of sin and death. Everyone is a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. And that it's when you wake up, when you have your eyes opened to just how bad the bad news really is in your life, that the good news is all the more glorious. Pharaoh refused to see the bad news. He was in denial. And so the plague would come. But he tries to compromise here again for a moment. Okay, I'll let you go and serve your God like you're requesting. And then he asks this question, which ones are going to go? Okay, Israelites, I'm going to let you go. Which ones are going to go? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. What, is, what does Moses say? Everyone, everyone's going with us. Young, old, doesn't matter. Everyone's going with us, even all of our livestock. And then... Pharaoh says this, and this is something that's thick with irony. He says, the Lord be with you if I ever let all of you go. As if to say, yeah, you're going to need Yahweh if I let you go. And what's the irony? The Lord is going to be with them, and they are going to go out. All of them. Moses says, not on my watch, not today. The men can go. The men can go. That's what you are asking that's not enough. And notice what Pharaoh does at the end. He drives them out of his presence. Pharaoh still wants to be God. How can I say that? Because what happened in the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were driven from God's presence. Now Pharaoh thinks that he's able to escape a pending death by his denial, and he's going to play the part of God and drive these men out from his presence as if there's still some greatness in him. What are we to learn from Pharaoh? You can deny, 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 but you will have to face the reality that there is impending death. It might feel and taste good today to deny it, but it will be bitterness and rottenness in your mouth tomorrow. Number two, 
You can be anxious when confronted with impending death. You can be anxious when confronted with impending death. The locusts that were warned about now come upon the land, and it says this east wind blew in the locusts. It blew all day, it blew all night, and in the morning, here were all of these locusts. This east wind is referred to a few times in our text this morning. The east wind becomes associated with God's judgment and God's punishment and wrath in the Old Testament. So, Jeremiah eighteen seventeen says, Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. So this east wind becomes synonymous with God's judgment and God's punishment. And the locusts come, which shows that Egypt is under the wrath of God. And with their coming is this foreshadowing of the next plague. There were so many locusts, the swarm was so heavy and so dense that what? It darkened the land. It's a foreshadowing of the next plague that is about to come. And the locusts do what we said. They eat and eat. They eat all of the vegetation. Vegetation is something that was precious in the land. If you had something green, show that it was alive and vibrant. You wanted to hold, that on, hold on to that and protect it, take care of it. Vegetation, in God's word, often becomes a sign and a symbol for the the fragility of life. It tells us and underscores the fact that human life is not permanent. And so this plague is meant to show the Egyptians just how fragile their lives really are. And this is what we know to be true about our lives. It is momentary. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. It is like a vapor in a mist. And how people might be terrified and anxious to know that they are just a vapor and a mist. Could make them frantic. And the locusts did something. They got the attention of Pharaoh, didn't they? He hastily calls Moses and Aaron back into his presence and he confesses again. I have sinned against Yahweh and against you. And then he asks for forgiveness of sin. And then we see that Pharaoh is anxious because he understands what's going on. These locusts upon the land are like death to me. I'm underneath this death, these locusts. Please remove this death from me. Take it away. And look at these words that Pharaoh is saying. As he is Asking, confessing, asking for forgiveness, confessing his sin. Think about that for a moment. Is Pharaoh saved? Has he been converted? Doesn't it sound so good? It looks like Pharaoh is saying all of the right things. Sounds like He's turning to God. I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Forgive my sin, please, only this once. Plead with the Lord, your God. Only remove this death from me. It sounded so good. 
but yet he did not want to really submit himself. He did not really want to humble himself. He just wanted to escape death. He was so anxious, it led to outward words that sounded good, but there was no really inward heart chains. No change of mind, no change of will, no change of affections, all external, nothing internal that is done by God's Holy Spirit. How dangerous this is in our minds when people can say all of the right things, yet there is no internal transformation. There is no regeneration of the person. There is no being made new. I mean, do we think what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but what? But inside, you're full of dead man's bones. What a warning for us. That inward change must be there. We cannot skip over that. We cannot look past that. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh. He pleaded with the Lord. The Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind. So with this west wind comes deliverance, relief, lifted up the locusts, it drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But again, there was no change in his heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. All of the anxiousness about impending death, it becomes clear that only the Lord can do something about death. Only the Lord can take it away. Only the Lord can remove it. And so, being in denial, when confronted with impending death, being anxious, when confronted with impending death, can lead people to number three. You can try to wrestle for control when confronted with impending death. You can try to wrestle for control when confronted with, when confronted with impending death. The ninth plague. Notice, no warning no going to Pharaoh beforehand. It's just, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that is to be felt. Maybe we understand this. We use some of the same words sometimes. It's a thick darkness. It's a heavy darkness that was upon the land of Egypt. Egypt, and it was a supernatural darkness. Maybe you could say this sometimes I can feel the darkness closing in around me. It was a darkness that clung to the people. It describes it as a pitch darkness, or a dark darkness, or a deep darkness that was in the land of Egypt for three days so dark that they could not see one another. They couldn't do anything. It was a completely debilitating darkness, a darkness that was upon them that was so oppressive and ominous, and it was a reflection of the state of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. In their hearts, they loved the darkness rather than the light, so God gave them darkness. 
They were cut off from one another. They were isolated. They were all alone. They were rendered useless by the darkness. And it was complete darkness that lasted for three whole days. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were sitting in darkness. But there was a distinction, wasn't there? The Israelites had light where they lived. Land of Egypt, darkness. Where the Israelites are living, light. Why? Why was there light for the Israelites but not for the Egyptians? Because God chose it to be so. Because that was God's plan. That's what God decided. He said, these are my people and they will get my light. These people are in darkness and they will receive darkness. The only reason that the Israelites received light is not because there was anything in them. It's not because they were strong or powerful or more numerous. It was simply because it was God's grace. God's grace gave them his light. And this is the separation, this is the distinction between all people. There are those that are in darkness of judgment and the curse of death, and there are those who are in the light, who know the light, who love and embrace the light, and so know the blessings that come from God from living in the light. And Jesus makes this distinction when he comes and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will what? Will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. It's either walking in darkness of death or having the light of life that is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And so Jesus goes on to say in John 12, 35 and 36, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. This is what Jesus is calling people to. He's saying, I am the light of the world. Believe in me. Put your faith and trust in me, in the one who is the light, and you will not walk in darkness. You will not know the ultimate judgment and wrath of God that comes upon this whole world because of their sin. You will become actually sons of light. You will have the light of life. This is what he calls you to today. If, if you are walking in darkness, you say, I am shrouded by darkness, I'm sitting in darkness, come to the light, come to Jesus Christ. Come receive the light of life. Let him forgive you of your sins. Let him give you eternal life. Let him be your everything, all that you ever need. What is God showing to the Israelites? He's showing them that he is all that they truly need. Everything that they need is found in him and in him alone. Egypt is going through a decreation. They're going from light to darkness. They're going from an, a state of order to a state of chaos. They are going from light to darkness and judgment and wrath that will be poured out upon them. 
But for the Israelites, for God's people, there's light. And life. And salvation. And joy. And worship. Pharaoh wants to try to control Israel's worship. He's been doing this throughout the plagues. If you go back to Exodus 8.25, first he tries to control the location. Okay, you can serve the Lord, but you must do it within the land. Then today, he tried to control the people who were to worship and said, okay, you can go, but only the men, not everybody. And then here in this, he says, I will control the provisions, how you are able to worship. You can go, but you cannot take your livestock with you. Moses says, we don't know what the Lord's going to require until we get there. We have to take all of our livestock with us. What is all of this redemption? What is all of this salvation leads to at least the people being able to worship God the way that they were designed and meant to worship God the way that he prescribed them to worship him? And we see Pharaoh try to wrestle control, don't we? How does he try to wrestle control? By saying this, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face again, you shall die. How does he try to wrestle control? I'm in control here. I'm in control of when you die or if you live. I'm going to control it. Not your God, not you, not anyone else. I'm in control, and I will say when you live and when you die. And in fact, isn't this similar to what we see later on in Exodus? What does it say later on in Exodus? No one can see the Lord and what? And live. Pharaoh, though, is not God. He is not the one that's in control of death. And no matter how hard he tries to wrestle it away from God, he's not going to win. In fact, what? Death is at his very doorstep. He's about to be enveloped and engulfed in death. So all of these responses, denial, anxiety, trying to control Death is not how Christians, it's not how true believers respond to the judgment of death. How are we to respond? How about Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How can Paul say that? I mean, how can Paul say that and really mean it? To die is gain? Why would death be gain? Well, it would have to be then that in death, you are not receiving the judgment and wrath of God. It would have to be in death, you're actually gaining something good. 
in death, you'd have to be gaining more than you could ever gain here on earth. And that's what it is for the Christian. For the Christian, to die is gain because in death, we gain Jesus Christ in all that He is, in all of His glory, in all of His goodness, if He is our everything. People who would want to hold on to this world, people who would want to try to pile up riches for themselves now, people who would think there's more to gain here in this life will never be able to say for me to die is gain because as Christians, we realize that all that we have to gain, all that we could ever want is only gained through our death when then we are with Christ forever and ever. For me to live is Christ, so I live for him now, but if I die, that is gain because God is my portion He is my everything. Death cannot take that away from me. Death only gives that more to me. (laughs) Because that death, this physical death, is only the first death. Do you realize there are two deaths? Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Revelation chapter 20, we'll end with this. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You see that there? Over such what the second death. Unless the Lord comes back first, there is a physical death that you and I will experience, a first death that we will experience. But that first first death is not the final death, is not the second death. There is a second death that is coming. And with this second death comes all of God's judgment and all of God's wrath and eternal judgment that will last forever. But what? But for those who know Jesus Christ, for those who are part of what is called the first resurrection, they will not know the second death. The second death will have no power over them. They will only know Christ's glory and goodness forever and ever. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That is the appending death that we want no one to know. That is the impending death that we do not want to know. We want to say, look to Jesus Christ, the one who hung upon the cross, the one who, when he was there, hanging upon the cross, the whole land was shrouded in darkness. Why? Because God's judgment and God's wrath was being poured out upon his holy Son for us, for our sake, so that we might not know the justice and the judgment and the anger and the wrath of God upon us but that so, we, so that we might be forgiven and set free. So that we might be made new. So that we might not have to, deny, have to deny impending death or be anxious about impending death or try to control death in some way. But so that we could say, for to me to die is gain. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that your word would work in us today. Have its perfect work in us. To view death in the way that you would have us. To view death with hope and with certainty and with security and without fear, without denial, without anxiety. Father, we pray that we would see what Christ has done for us to keep us from the threat of the second death, to save us and rescue us. We thank you for what he has done through the cross. We pray if there's someone here today who does not know Christ, that they would run to him, come to him today. They would put their faith and trust in him to save them from their sins so that they might be brought to you and brought into your family and so that they might know eternal life. Would they today confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and so be saved. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.